Good morning, and uh, welcome to Pleasant Street Christian Reformed Church. It's good to see all of you, and thank you for being here today. Um, right there, actually. Um, uh, if you, if, for those of you who are joining us or visiting, uh, welcome to you especially. My name is Matthew. I'm the senior pastor here. On behalf of all of us, we're really glad that you could join us as we get started. And welcome to those of you who join us remotely uh, either with the live stream starting this morning or at some point with the service recording this week. Uh, when we worship as a church, we do so using words that we've printed in the liturgy, conveniently placed in your hands on the way in, and also displayed for you on the screens as well. As we get started, there's usually a couple of things to highlight about things happening in the life of our church, and so there's a few that I want to make known to you today as we get started. As a church, we've been talking about uh, connecting and reconnecting, and we recognize that we're in a time where people are reevaluating values in their life and thinking about um, the place of church within that. And so we have people who are rediscovering the importance of faith and Christian community in their lives. We have many of us who are looking and craving for more intimate and meaningful connection in our lives as well. And so if you find yourselves in those situations, there's a couple events that are coming up in our church that I want to highlight for you, ways that you can connect. One is through a membership group that will be starting this week, um, that will be meeting on February 15th, this coming Wednesday night, and then again on March 22nd from 6.30 to 8 p.m., Uh, There's no obligation to become a member, but if you are interested in the life of our church community or learning more about the denomination that we are a part of, or just meeting some of the other new folks here at Pleasant Street, come and join us. Uh, Let me know if you're interested so I can make sure we have materials for you. The second thing to let you know is that starting in April, uh, we're going to be hosting a conversation around this book called Confronting Christianity, and there is a sign-up in the Ministry Connections Corner, which you passed on your way in. Uh, If you are interested in exploring some of the most important or most pressing modern questions that people have about Christianity, some of the questions that we have too, please come and join us for these conversations. The plan is to read the book on your own and then join us for the four Wednesdays in April. And if you want to know more, there's a description in your bulletin. Finally, I wanted to let you know that this coming Saturday, so a week from today, we'll be having a a missionary from Japan who is in town joining us, and we're going to be hosting a breakfast at 10 a.m. right there in the fellowship hall. His name is Larry Spalink, and we would love for you to come and join us for that, to hear about uh, what it's like to be a Christian person in a place like Japan where there are very, very few Christians Uh, to learn about what it's like to try to follow Jesus uh, amongst people who have very, very different values. I think these conversations are really important for us because we find ourselves in increasingly similar circumstances, but also breakfast. So please come and join us for that. But uh, for now, you have all gathered here in the presence of God to worship. And so friends, I'd invite you to rise and body your spirit. Let's do that together now. Good morning, everybody. Our call to worship this morning comes from Psalm 47. Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. For the Lord Most High is awesome, the great King over all the earth. 
He subdued nations under us, people under our feet. He chose our inheritance for us, the pride of Jacob, whom we loved. God has ascended amidst shouts of joy, the Lord amid the sounds of the trumpets. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. Great there. 
Friends, you may be seated. We certainly do have an awesome, great God. A merciful God, you have loved us beyond our understanding, and you have sent us on paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Grant us now the grace to die daily to, to sin and to rise daily to a new life in Christ. Now let's take a moment with this prayer of confession that we just recited and really take it into your heart and confess to God. Hear these words of assurance. The Lord is faithful in all his words and gracious in all his deeds. The Lord upholds all who are falling and rises up all who are bowed down. Through Jesus, you are forgiven. Through Jesus, we can truly live as children of God. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. So I'd like to invite the deacons up now for our morning offerings. We have two offerings this morning. Uh, we will receive for the ministers of Pleasant Street, and the second offering will be for the Christian education at WCS. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are an abundant God. Of your great mercy, you have given us so many gifts. And we respond to you this morning with giving of our financial, our time, our talents. Lord, use this to, to glorify you to spread your kingdom here on earth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
We get to respond to God by passing the peace that Christ has given to us. So friends, look around. These are your brothers and sisters in Christ, and I encourage you to pass the peace with them. The peace of Christ is with you. time for our Kids Street Dismissal. I invite all the kids up, ages four through second grade, come up to be dismissed for Kids Street. People of God, what is our prayer? Lord be with you. And also with you. Go in peace to love and serve Jesus. Good morning. When we gather for church together, as we do each week, we get a chance to use our voices. And we get to use our voices to speak God's name 
and to talk about how good he is and all the things that he's done in our lives. And we do that in part because it helps us remember. We also ask for forgiveness, and we get to hear God speak with his voice back to us, words of forgiveness and assurance and love. And then renewed in this relationship, we get to use our voices again to offer prayers, to bring to God the things that need help and places that hurt in our lives and in the world. And so we're going to do that together now. Before we do so, there's a couple things I want to mention because I'll mention it in the prayer and I want you to know what I'm talking about. One is that we've been praying for Cindy and Derek H. They've had some recent hard news about progress to the cancer and so we'll remember them in particular and their family. And also up the street, our brothers and sisters at United Presbyterian got some news that their building uh, has some vulnerabilities and maybe at risk of falling, or at least a portion of it. And so we're thinking about them as they gather, uh, a little bit wondering about the future together. Friends, will you pray with me? Holy God, we do praise you with our lips today. We praise you because when there is an earthquake, we know we can hold tight to you. When there is a flood, we can find safe, high ground with you. When there is a virus, we can find healing with you. And even when we are apart from each other and those we love, we are at home with you. Loving God, we love you. We trust you. We know that Jesus loves us and died for us. We know that you never leave us, and we praise you because you show us all these things are true for us in our baptism. Baptism shows us that we belong to you no matter what and that you are faithful no matter what. And so we plead your faithfulness and your love for people in our world who have experienced very scary things and who are so sad about the world today. We pray for the people of southern Turkey who have just experienced two very severe earthquakes and more than 100 aftershocks. We have seen on the news desperate hands clawing at rubble, people caked in dust, gasping for air. We've seen broken roads and families torn, children without parents and parents without children, and we feel so small, and the needs of the world are so overwhelming. Lord God, we praise you for you are not overwhelmed today. Lord, please continue to rescue and to heal and to comfort those who are buried in the rubble and sadness. Please lead the governments involved, be especially with Turkish authorities as well as with those in Syria. Please mobilize those who are far away with resources to spare, to spare them. Please guide agencies and helpers on the ground so that they can get the things needed to those who need them. Please stay the cholera outbreak in Syria and bring an end to the continued civil war there. Lord, closer to home, we think of our own brothers and sisters here in town at United Press who are also worried about the stability of things, who are worried about their building and the future of it. We credit your mercy that there hasn't been damage or loss of life. Please guide Reverend Susan and the trustees and the congregation as they figure out what to do next. 
Lord God, all these people and all these needs, and today, so much money will be spent on a football game. It's not wrong to delight in games and sports, for these can be good things. But today, as your people, we see that there is more than sport to the Super Bowl, and much of it not good. And so help us, as your people, not to get hooked by the militaristic displays of machismo power or the rampant idolatry of money and youth and beauty, which so diminishes life. Instead, help us to notice those who are put at risk because of an event like this. Women who may be trafficked, gambling addicts who will be sorely tempted or may be ruined, a creation despoiled by garbage and greed and negligence. Call us away from self-aggrandizing liturgies and toward your way of quiet and obscure weakness and self-sacrifice. Father God, you are faithful to us even though we are not faithful to you. You seek us when we turn away from you. You forgive us when we return to you. You change us when we spend time with you. You give us good news to share for what we found with you, and you promise that one day we will be like you. Faithful God, we praise you because you ask us to be part of your family, and you teach us how to be part of your family, to be servants to each other in the world. Lord, we pray for those in our midst who are learning to serve, for all of our middle school and high school students and the volunteers who are going with them to Berea next week as they learn from you and learn how to be with you and how to serve you. Giving God by water and the Holy Spirit, you claimed us as your own, washing away our sin and giving us a new kind of life. Renew us in the promises that you made at our baptisms. Continue the good work that you have begun in us. Continue to show us the next steps to take in our own lives and as a church. And teach us more and more about yourself so that together with all your people, we might grow in faith and hope and love and be faithful disciples of Jesus. We pray for those who need this mark of baptism as they walk through the valley of the shadow of death and healing and recovery. We pray for Cindy and Derek. We remember Richard M. We think of Theona. We think of Hank and Bev. And so many others whose names and stories we carry close to our heart. Lord, today we celebrate because of everything that you have done for us. We are excited about everything that you promised to keep doing in us. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's scripture reading comes from Colossians 3, 8 through 17. But now you must also rid yourselves of all things such as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge of the image of the Creator. 
Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Together as a church, these last few weeks during Epiphany, we've been looking at some new mission and vision language for our church, which is conveniently displayed right above my head there. As we continue that this morning, would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, in the midst of our service, we quiet our hearts And we listen carefully to hear that already your story, your praise, your good news resounds in this room through words in Scripture, through our words, and through the songs that we have already sung. We ask, O God, that in these next few minutes, that you would take that story resounding and reverberating in the walls of this room and that you would help it to work its way deep into the very center of our being. Amen. The year was... 177 A.D., and the place was Lyon in the Rhone Valley in modern-day France. And that summer, hostility toward Christian foreigners in the city had come to a frothy boiling point because the Christians had refused to engage in the city's rituals of sacrifice. And so Christians of all ages and classes, both men and women, masters and slaves, were dragged through a rain of fists and stones to the central square in Lyon. They were flung into cells, and eventually they were flung into the amphitheater. By this point, Roman society had perfected the art of making a show of death. But the spectacle in that stadium of Rome met its match that summer in the Christians of Lyon. Eusebius, who might be a person you're not familiar with and there's no reason that you should be, Eusebius was one of our church fathers and one of the people to first write down the stories of early Christianity. And he recounts many of the stories of those who died in Lyon that summer, those who in their fiery ordeal fashioned from it a public display of their devotion to Jesus. 
But of all those whom Eusebius records, there is one woman in particular who really captures his attention. Her name is Blandina, and she was a slave. Her mistress and her owner was also a Christian, and she was also martyred that summer, but she doesn't even warrant being named. For Eusebius, it was Blandina, the slave who won the crown of glory. It's interesting because the account tells us that Blandina was frail. She was small, and her fellow believers were worried that she would not be able to hold up under the torture. Well, the story goes that not only did Blandina endure torture well, but she actually wore the executioners out. They ran out of ideas for how to hurt her. And throughout the ordeal, she just kept saying, I am a Christian. And we commit no wrongdoing. Blandina, though slight and frail and despised, was lauded by Eusebius and everybody who saw her that day as a champion. And in her agony, she seemed somehow transfigured. Her fellow martyrs looked upon their sister and they saw the one who was crucified for them. Well, when you hear a story like that, we can hardly blame Eusebius for focusing so much on her life. Blandina, in this story, right, she is possessed by a quality of life that cannot be taken away by tormentors or fists or death. Though frail, she is somehow more alive than the people who are trying to kill her. The closer she gets to death, the more she looks like Jesus. And I know, they tell us this in seminary, the trouble with martyrs and stories about martyrs is that they are in, inspiring, but they feel like the exception. But it would be a mistake for us today to think of Blandina as a superhero. She was a slave in a world in which no one expected the names of slaves to be worth mentioning. Surely, if she is a slave, then she is the same as us. I don't tell you Blandina's story because of how she died, my friends, but because of how she lived. She was alive with Christ's life, animated somehow by the love of God and ruled by peace in circumstances in which there should have been no peace. She lived as though a genuinely free person no longer defined by her country of origin or her status as a slave, and it showed. Which is the same thing that Paul wants for all of us. When he talks about living Christ's life. To be people possessed of a quality of life that is well, there's no other word for it except good. To be people who are ruled by peace, who live thankfulness and gratitude from our guts. It's just the natural response to our circumstances in the world. Who are animated by compassion and kindness and mercy and gentleness and who wear the love of God like a belt that ties the whole outfit of our lives together. 
This is how Paul describes Christianity in Colossians 3. Paul here is writing about how to live the Christian life. He is writing to a young church in a hostile culture full of all kinds of different religions, and he is writing to try to help them to navigate the difference between authentic Christianity and the many philosophies and religion that they encounter in their world. He's trying to help the Colossians know and remember what Christianity is about. And what he is saying is that Christianity is about becoming more alive in the world than we thought was even possible. Paul says that what defines authentic Christianity is becoming more human, not less. Christianity is a new self raised up to new life, a new you, and fittingly, new clothes to go along with it. Of course, by clothes, Paul means behaviors. Authentic Christianity is a new identity, and it's a new way of living in the world and living out that identity. Paul says to the Colossians, you know, it's really interesting. He says there's two things that define authentic Christianity in their world. It's the way that they live with respect to sex and speech. In chapter 3, Paul says that there are some things that need to be put to death if we're going to live. They have to do with how we treat our bodies and each other's bodies, and they have to do with how we use our words. Paul says, put to death all sexual immorality, not only the things that you do with your body, but also the ones you imagine doing. And second, Paul says, now now that you have done that, rid yourselves also of all angry speech, all slander and gossip and dehumanizing jokes, don't lie to each other anymore. For all of these things, Paul says, are are part of the old self with its old ways of dealing in death. What we do with our bodies and what we say with our words, two areas of life that need overhauling, Paul says. They need new clothes, new patterns of behavior in the world if we want to be free, which is really interesting because Well, those happen to be two areas of life in which we take a great deal of pride in already having a lot of freedom. The freedom of sexual expression is a defining characteristic for modern people like us. Without it, we believe you cannot possibly be free in the world. And we feel the same way about freedom of speech. Without it, no one can be a free person. Now, I think it tends to be the case that modern progressives are more likely to see the need to restrain speech, and traditionalists tend to be more likely to see the need to restrain sex, and this is one of those moments where authentic Christianity critiques both. Remember, authentic Christianity is about being renewed into the image of the one who created us. Christianity is about being more alive, not less. Casual sex and promiscuous speech, they are a problem, not because Paul is some ancient prudish guy, but because these things are dehumanizing. We want to be free of shame-inducing taboos so that we can be free to do what we want with our bodies, 
Do you not see that that has only turned other people into objects for our own gratification? And in turn, it's made us slaves to our own desires, which are never satisfied and only grow. We want to be free to express ourselves verbally however we want with no consequence, but that's only turned the world into an echo chamber of angry voices. Everyone's talking, nobody's listening. And Paul says, do you, do you not see that you are dressed in death? Do you not see how these things make you smaller than you were? Speech and bodies, according to Paul, they're not personal choices. They affect other people profoundly. Paul is trying to show us, the Colossians and us, that life in the world is marked by anger and selfishness, hostility and strife and discord. We use other people to get what we want and they use us in return. There's greed and conflict of all kinds and, and these things are all death. And they're all just the way we live in the world. We thought it was normal. Paul says it's a participation in death. Christianity, however, he says, is about coming back to life. And that means being permeated to the very core of your being by the love of God. So some of you have maybe seen The Godfather, and in particular, Godfather Part 3, right? And if you don't know the story, what's happening there is that Michael Don Corleone has made a deal to try to get into this international banking situation that involves the Vatican. Well, he finds out there's some people who are trying to swindle him. And at this part of the movie in The Godfather Part 3, Don Corleone uh, is in Italy, and he goes to see Cardinal Lamberto, who is uh, slated to be the next pope. And Michael is having a private conversation with the cardinal. He trusts him because contrary to many of the other priests in the Vatican system, that Michael has met, Cardinal Lamberto seems to be the real deal. And he's trying to work this out with the Cardinal about how there are people who are taking advantage of him, and, and he wants the Cardinal's help. And as the Cardinal is listening, they're walking in a courtyard, and the Cardinal goes over to a fountain bubbling with water. And he reaches into the fountain, and he picks up a stone. And he says, look at this stone. It has been lying in the water for a very long time, but the water has not penetrated. Look, he says. He breaks the stone in half. And he shows Michael the inside. Perfectly dry. The same thing has happened to people in Europe. For centuries, they have been surrounded by Christianity, but Christ has not penetrated. Christ doesn't live within them. My friends, in a world of people who are all wondering what all of this is about, Paul reminds us that the Christian life is not about coming to church and being surrounded by other Christians. It is not about getting the water of baptism applied to your head or even being immersed in it. The authentic Christian life is about renewal into the image of God, and that must go to the very core of who you are. 
It's not about better church attendance or more rigorous moral effort. It's not about voting correctly or donating sufficiently. It is about allowing God to drown our stony hearts, break them wide open and penetrate us with the love of God expressed in Jesus Christ until we are saturated through to the core with God's love. The authentic Christian life is about becoming like Jesus. And friends, Jesus is the litmus test for what a real, full, free human life looks like. Just look at Jesus for a minute, okay? He is the most fully alive, most human, human being that we have ever seen. He has a quality of life that is iridescent. He's a man of sorrows who weeps over the injustice in the world and the suffering that we experience in death that his friends and strangers experience, and he, and he works against that. And he's the kind of man who has time for kids. He picks them up and he puts them on his lap. He listens to their stories, delighting in their delight in the world. He is not some stoic religious teacher, but someone who is genuinely awake and involved in the world. If you look at Jesus in any sincerity and then look in the mirror, you cannot help but say that Jesus is a lot more human than I am. Which seems to be something Paul is wanting us all to recognize. Dallas Willard, modern writer on the spiritual life, man of God par excellent, right? He writes that there was a time in his life where he did not really take becoming like Jesus seriously. Spent his life in church. He's a philosopher. He teaches Christianity. He said, I didn't take becoming like Jesus seriously until I realized that I didn't love the people who lived next door. I don't mean that metaphorically. He says, literally, I did not love my next door neighbors. I looked out the window, and I'll tell you why. It's not hard to imagine. They were ex-bikers who made their living selling drugs. To be clear, Willard says, they never tried to harm him or his family, but the house kept this constant traffic of people buying drugs, a number of whom, a number of whom would sit in the yard while they shot up. And so one day, he's peeking out his window, brooding in his immense irritation and his self-righteous indignation when Jesus shows him what's in his heart. And Willard realizes that he would not have cared at all if they died. Secretly, he'd actually be happy they were gone. Here's the thing. The revelation extends. Because he realizes that drug-dealing neighbors is one thing, but he looks at the rest of his life and he sees the same kind of apathy extended to nearly all the people he interacts with throughout the day. Even when he's on, quote, religious business, he just didn't really care about them or what was happening in their lives. They were of no consequence to him. Now, maybe he thought of himself as a good person, someone who knew and loved Jesus and Maybe he was, but what he realized is that he was a lot less alive than he thought. And he writes this, I had to admit in that moment that I had never earnestly sought to be possessed by God's kind of love. I had never actually sought 
to become more like Jesus, which, of course, is what it means to be a student of Jesus. Our goal, he writes, is to learn to be like him. More than that, it is for ordinary people in common surroundings to live from the abundance of God's kingdom, letting the spirit and the actions of Jesus become the natural outflow of our lives. Wow. And maybe that's just Dallas being faux humble. That happens. But it did get me to wondering, when is the last time that our hearts went out in generous blessing to someone who had humiliated us? Are we the kind of people who work for the well-being of people who openly despise us, who have told us in not so many words to drop dead? When is the last time you were genuinely pulling for the success of someone who is competing with you for the promotion, or the contract, or the title, or the prize, or first place, or the role in the play? Our doormats all say, welcome, friends, but could they also genuinely say, welcome, enemies? When you lend a dress or a laptop or a car or tools or books, do you release them without any hope of ever seeing them again? For this is what people possessed and permeated by God's kind of love find themselves doing. Paul says in Colossians, Therefore, friends, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, be renewed inside with organs, with new guts of mercy and kindness and humbleness and meekness and long-suffering and forbearance and forgiveness and love. Willard said, we should not only want to be merciful and kind and unassuming and patient persons, but actually also making plans to become so. Friends, the only way that we will break the vice grip of sin and the frantic stride of fear and death that shapes our living in the world is to be transferred out of this world and set down into a new dominion, to be, as Will Willimon once wrote, cut loose from all the old certainties, to be thrust under the flood and to be pulled forth fresh and newborn. In other words, it is to remember and believe that in Christ we have been drowned and all of our old self with it. And we have been raised up to a new kind of life. We have gone down into the waters of death, soaked in death, and we have been pulled up again by God out of the water, seeing and hearing for the first time the same voice that Jesus did at his baptism. You are my beloved child. Friends, authentic Christianity is about learning how to do what you are. So we've been talking about mission and some key values here at Pleasant Street for the last couple of weeks. You've seen it. You've heard it. Here it is again. Pleasant Street is a community of people found in Jesus 
who together joyfully experience Christ's love, receive Christ's word, live Christ's life. Right? And we've gone and done all of this work because the world is changing. And this series of values, these three simple things, we want them to be defining for who we are. What we want to do is try and remember and define characteristics of what real Christianity looks like in our confused and distracted and misguided world. We want to be people who are genuinely experiencing the love of God spoken over us. We want to be people who eat the nourishing food of Scripture because we have found that everything else is empty and tasteless. We want to be people who bear fruit and live congruent lives from the inside out. People who are animated and possessed by the love of God expressed in His forgiveness and in his bestowing of new clothes. People who sing the story of God's salvation over us again and again. Which, as Dallas Willard says, is really all the church needs. He says the greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs is whether or not people who identify as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus, people who are steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens in each and every corner of our existence. Or as Paul says, as those being renewed in the knowledge of the image of our creator, as those born into a new way of life, as those dearly loved by the God of the universe himself, who dress up in Jesus each day. For friends, this is why God has come to us. To dress, for us to dress in Jesus, Jesus had to first take something off. Jesus, he had everything. He had all the glory and the love and the trust and the power, the best clothing, you could say. He was robed as a son and a king, and when it was time, he took all of it off, and he came here of all places. Jesus takes off his heavenly glory and he dresses to look like us. He becomes a human and not just human, but a servant and not just a servant, but a slave. And throughout his life, he keeps taking off glory, spending his time with the least glorified, hanging out with those who could do nothing for him, enduring the derision and scorn of people who should have lauded him. He keeps taking off his glory right up until his death when his clothes are literally stripped from him and gambled for while he is gasping for breath beneath them. He dies naked and utterly alone. Why? Why does the gospel go into all of this detail to show us that he has done this so he could dress us in his glory. He becomes what we are so that we can become what he is. And so Paul says today, tomorrow, every day, when you rise and when you go to bed, when you come into the hospital or put on a jacket or go home from work, when you put on clean scrubs or a new tie or a clean electrician's shirt for the day, remember, 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 that today when you woke up, the truest thing in the world is that Jesus died, Jesus rose from the dead, 
Jesus is in charge of all the universe, and you died with him, and you are being raised to new life. So dress accordingly. On the night before the Passover, Jesus was with his disciples, and he gave them, of all things, a meal. And at that meal, he told them that this one was special. It was to be a reminder of something he was about to do. And this bread and this wine, they were going to be a symbol of his body and his blood given for them, and they were going to keep eating it together and remember him and wait for him. And we do that together every month. And after the meal, Jesus took off his clothes and he got a basin of water and he knelt down and he asked them to take off their shoes. And Jesus began to wash their manure-encrusted feet. And Peter says, stop. And Jesus says, you need this. And Peter says, then wash all of me. And Jesus says, I already have. What does he mean? Jesus means that he has already taken off our old death clothes and he has washed you in his blood and he has made you clean. And for those of you who have met him, who believe in him, you are clean too. And for those of you who feel the dirt, he offers the same. And now Jesus has given us something else to wear to dress like him, to act like him, which is why Jesus says to us, wash each other's feet. Wash your neighbor's feet. Wash the feet of your enemies, not because we need to be washed, but because we already have been. It might feel a little awkward. Humility does pinch around the ego. Compassion is not always the most fashion-forward decision that you could make when you get up for the day. Humility can be a rough fabric to put on, but be that as it may, I can tell you without a doubt that compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, they look great on you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, that all the theology and stories that we have in the New Testament should turn on something like changing the way that we live our lives is almost too wonderful to believe. That you would come across heaven and earth itself to come and find us, to reclaim what is lost, to find us in you is wonderful. We ask, Lord Jesus, that as people who walk through this world saturated and permeated with death and pain and suffering, that you would come and find us that you would cleanse us by your Spirit and that you would renew in us the truth and the goodness of your way of life, that we would be a church 
that gathers to receive your word and that scatters out into the world to live it in all joy and faithfulness and obedience. We pray this in your name. Amen. Even as we as a church are trying to understand God's story and his words for us, we have ways to do this uh, as a church in specific ways. And so I want to invite our Echo Age students to come forward as the worship team is joining us. We have a blessing for you guys as you head down to talk with some of our church leaders about what you're hearing and experiencing in our worship service. So people of God, what is our prayer? Almighty and loving God. Thank you for the gift of your word. Help us to believe what we have heard and live in ways that honor you above all. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve Jesus. Thanks be to God. Friends, would you rise in body and spirit? Let's sing together.
the thing that we remember and proclaim each week is that the name of Jesus, as good and as beautiful as it is, has been bestowed upon you. God has turned his face, who he, he looked at his son in all belovedness and splendor and glory, and now through Jesus, that is how he sees you. And friends, we get to receive that together. I'd invite you to do that now. Friends, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen. Let's go singing. Jesus. 
God is mighty to save. He is mighty to save. Friends, go now in peace to love and serve Jesus Christ.